Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Series four will be the last in this podcast, and it has been the most incredible experience to dig into so many different aspects of the plant breeding world and literally the world. If you're listening to this, you're part of a community that spans the globe from Albania to Zambia, Adelaide, Australia and Ames, Iowa to Zurich. Dr. Lena Tripathi is the Principal Scientist in Plant Biotechnology at the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture in Kenya, where her main focus is the use of biotechnology to develop new varieties of musa, better known to most people as bananas. In this conversation, we talk about why this genus is particularly susceptible to pests and diseases, making it especially important to find effective ways of developing resistance. Lena discusses how biotechnology tools have advanced this process, the many uses of bananas, and the role of regulation in relation to such an important global crop. I hope you enjoy it. It's great to have you here today, Lena. Can you kick us off by introducing yourself? I'm Lira Tripathi. I'm a plant molecular biologist and um, I'm the director for the Eastern Africa hub of IITA, but I also lead the biotech research at IITA. Currently, I'm based in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, but I oversee uh, the five countries in Eastern Africa, which is uh, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Madagascar and Sudan. Excellent. So you've got quite a wide geography under your remit. Yeah. And then I also lead the transgenic and the genome editing uh, platform at IIT. How did you come into being interested in plants, plant breeding, agriculture? You know, give me a little bit of a sense about your background and maybe where you grew up and what sparked your interest in the first place. So I grew up in India, a city called Kanpur, which is very closer to our um, capital, which is New Delhi. And I grew up in a big city. So, you know, I was not very close to the plant or to the agriculture. I went into the pure sciences. So my undergrad is like biology and chemistry. So it's botany, zoology, chemistry. But then from there, I just wanted to do something innovative. So my interest went into biotechnology and I went and I did my master's in uh, biotechnology and molecular biology. And while I was doing my master's, my interest came more into the transgenic research, you know, like how to develop the disease resistant or a quality improvement of a crop. And mainly the concern was like, you know, food security. So that's how I went into the PhD, working more on plant molecular biology, and uh, I worked on a crop called chickpea. So I was the one who established like the chickpea transformation in my institute there where I was doing my PhD and then, you know, applied the transgenic approach for developing the pest resistance using the, the PT chain. And that's where I started. Like then I went and I did my postdoc in soya bean, you know, like continuity, like from legumes, from chickpea to the soya bean, then moved on to bananas. 
it was very strange that you know my first favorite fruit when i was a very young child like a year old or so was bananas you know and i'm working on bananas that's like a really coincidence but very nice coincidence yeah i always think it makes it um, extra enjoyable if you if you actively enjoy consuming the crop you work on <laughs> yeah yeah and did you ever consider any other any other careers or any other applications for the subjects that interested you? Or was, you know, did it fairly early become clear that it was going to be agriculture and plant breeding? From the very, very early uh, in my childhood, I always felt like, you know, I need to do something for the human welfare. And first thing which always comes to your mind is like saving life by using the medical approaches. But somehow I couldn't pursue that. And so that's when, you know, I went, I, but by the way, I never went into the pure agriculture. Actually, I always was on the modern uh, agriculture. So my first degree was in science and the second one is in the biotechnology. So I didn't study agriculture. I've heard that before. The sort of, when you're growing up, most people, unless you have a background in plant breeding, most people don't know it even exists. And so, you know, how can children grow up saying, I want to be a plant breeder or this is what I think is going to. So it's it's interesting, isn't it? How you know, going from that area of I think I want to contribute to human health can then transition later on in life to to plant breeding. Yeah. Uh, and actually, I grew up in the family of engineers. So my dad was engineer. And then I grew up on a campus, which is a, a engineering institute. So, you know, surrounding me were all engineers. And my interest was more into like, you know, health. And then, you know, so from the health, you can related to the food security because you know if you don't eat enough you you can't have the good health you know you there are problems with the malnutrition and everything so you know it's quite related yeah yeah absolutely absolutely so so now in what you've described so far you grew up in India but now you're based in Tanzania so you know I I can tell that there's at least two countries in your story but I gather there's some more in between so tell me a bit about how all that sort of moving around the world came about. I did my PhD from India which was National Botanical Research Institute based in Lucknow in India and after finishing my PhD I went to US and that's where I did my postdoc so it was at University of North Carolina at Greensboro and I was still working on legumes on soybean. And from there, I joined IITA, International Institute of Tropical Agriculture. And even within IITA, I moved several countries. So I started from Nigeria, which is the headquarters of IITA. And that's where I started working on bananas. From Nigeria, for a few years, I worked in Uganda. Then I moved to Nairobi in Kenya and then to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. But I still operate both in uh, in Tanzania and Kenya because that's our hub office for the Eastern Africa. But all my research is based in, in Kenya. So my laboratory is based in Nairobi. So this feels like a good place to ask you to tell us a bit about IITA. So, you know, you mentioned it's a CG center, but could you expand on that? What's the remit? How does it fit in with the other centers? You know, could you could you tell us a little about it? IITA is known for profit research organization based in Africa. And basically, we develop the solution for the smallholder farmers in Africa for food security 
and our aim is to like you know reduce hunger have the food security and the poverty alleviation so we do a lot of uh, research development and the delivery so that the solution can reach into the hands of farmers and how many countries does the iita span so we are almost more than 18 countries in in sub-saharan africa and we are part of uh, cgir we have four hubs in iita uh, west africa hub central africa east africa and southern africa so you started off focusing on legumes and then you transitioned into bananas so you know for most of us certainly in the uk most of us first thing that will come to mind is cavendish bananas but but of course there's more to it than that so perhaps you could just give me a bit of an overview of the the world the wonderful world of bananas actually before i joined iita i started working on bananas for me banana was also only dessert like a fruit you know cavendish banana but now i know more about bananas so let me give you a little bit history of bananas the banana originated from two different species musa acuminata and musa balbiciana so these are like a diploid banana so you know they have seeds and they are the like a progenitor of of bananas and bara- banana originated from southeast asia from there it is spread now bananas are grown in about 150 countries tropical and subtropical and some of the islands india and china are the big producers of banana followed by africa africa produces almost one third of the banana globally produced and even within the africa actually east africa around the great lakes region which which includes uh, uganda rwanda burundi kenya tanzania and part of dr congo that's the major banana producing areas there are hundreds of species of uh, of all the varieties you can say like you know different type of varieties of banana and they are different types of banana as well you know so like there are dessert types of banana which is like cavendish still in some places you can still find gros michel i'll tell you why i said that uh, but there are other dessert bananas like in africa you will find sukalindizi which we also commonly call apple banana these are the small bananas they can also be eaten as fruit uh, apart from eating them as fruit you know in africa banana is a staple food it's like a cooking type of bananas uh, and they make a dish called matoke actually the banana varieties are also called matuke and the dish is also called matuke is the dish looks very similar to the mashed potato you know and is a staple for in different countries like in uganda rwanda that's where i think is very common staple food then there is another type of banana which are used as uh, roasted bananas called plantains you know they are normally eaten as uh, fried or roasted and there are also some bananas which are used uh, for making beer so they are called brewing bananas ha huh, there you go i never knew that yeah so these are different types of bananas uh, and you know at some point gros michel used to be a very popular dessert banana but then it was wiped off with a disease called fusarium wilt and then after that cavendish became the most popular dessert bananas so when you talk about the big banana growers they still grow a lot of cavendish but when you come to africa to the small holder farmers 
you will find actually many different varieties. And actually the same same farmer can be growing different varieties for their own consumption. They will grow more of the cooking types, but for the for selling in the market, they might grow some of the dessert type or the brewing type of bananas. You mentioned that the progenitor species were diploid and they have seeds, but certainly the ones that are generally eaten as um, a dessert type banana don't have seeds in them. So how does that work out? All the... Uh, cultivated types of bananas are actually triploids. So dessert types or the cooking type, they all are the the triploids banana. And the triploid bananas are parthenocarpic and and sterile, so they don't have seeds. Ah, okay. Sorry, I forgot to mention that they are triploids. No, no, no. Well, that's good because then that leads into questions about how does one do breeding of bananas? Because if the variety that's eaten is triploid, but the breeding has can't you know can't easily happen because they're they're sterile so how do how do you go about breeding bananas how does that work uh, in breeding actually they still go back to diploid so the most of the breeding parents are actually diploids they also have some improved parents which are also diploid so they cross two diploids and then they get mainly the tetraploid and then they cross tetraploid with the improved diploid which is an improved parent, and then they get the triploid, which is actually the cultivated ones. Yeah, it's a bit of complicated. And then you know, not all varieties are sterile. Uh, there are uh, some varieties which can be crossed, some cannot be crossed. You know, uh, but but I'm not a breeder. I only know I know like superficial part. Like you know, I can tell you a little bit, but not not much of the detail. <laughs> Now, you mentioned the Gross Michel banana earlier, and I know that that variety was effectively wiped out by disease. And yet diseases are a major problem still facing banana growers all over the world today. Why is that? All bananas are actually vegetatively propagated. So they are clonally propagated. They are low in genetic diversity. That's one reason that, you know, they are more vulnerable to diseases. But the second thing I feel is the climate, you know, because the bananas are more grown into the tropics or subtropics. And those are the places which are very good for the pests and pathogens. You will find a lot of pests and pathogens, uh, different type, coexisting. So, you know, in the same field, you will find uh, like a bacterial pathogen, fungal pathogen, plus nematodes and weevils. So with that, you know, when the pest or pathogens are there, actually you know, they build up. So the pathogen, if it is there, it will happily keep multiplying there. So so that's the another reason that, you know, you will find uh, that once the pest pathogen is there, the control becomes a, a little bit difficult. How easy is it for growers to even start their banana plants disease-free? I mean, can they get hold of clean plantlets? Uh, it's only few countries where they use the tissue culture plantlets and then, you know, Every third year, they change the crop. You know, they bring the new pathogen-free tissue culture plantlets. Uh, but, but you know, sometimes the smallholder farmers, they can't afford doing that. Commercial farmers do that, but the smallholder farmers, sometimes uh, for them, it becomes too expensive when they can get the free plantlets, either from their own field or their neighbor's field. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International world leaders in pollination control. 
We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. So we have then this important group of species, um, important because they're consumed globally, they're very important constituents for nutritional security in certain parts of the world, and we also know we have this quite intense disease pressure. So let's just talk about that in a bit more detail. What kind of diseases or what kind of problems does that cause? And then we can go into the biotechnology and how, we, how that's being used to help tackle those problems. So there are a lot of uh, uh, diseases. There are bacterial diseases. And in the bacterial diseases, there are, again, several like bananas, anthomonas. Well, there is a moco disease. There is a blood disease. But the xanthomonas wilt is uh, quite destructive. And actually, in East Africa, this disease has wiped off bananas in several fields because it spreads very fast and controlling the diseases once into the field is very difficult. So that's the that's bacterial. There are also fungal diseases like black cigatoka and fusarium wilt. Black cigatoka is mainly the commercial growers. They control the disease by pest, using pesticide. And, you know, spraying pesticide on bananas are not easy because banana plantation, the bananas are quite tall, you know. So then spraying them, um, you need some type of uh, equipment, you know, it's difficult. And then there is a fusarium wilt. So as I mentioned before, gross michel was completely wiped off from, because gross michel used to be like the most popular desert varieties. Uh, And it was wiped off because of the fusarium wilt, race one. And then uh, the Cavendish was found to be resistant for Fusarium wilt race one. And then Gros Michel was replaced by Cavendish banana. But now there is a tropical race four Fusarium wilt, which Cavendish are now susceptible to. So that's like, that is a, like a biggest global challenge for banana production, I will say, because it's affecting Cavendish and that's uh, like in uh, many places. It's not only one country or two. Then there are, viral diseases like banana bungee top virus, which is also spreading pretty fast. And then there is a banana streak virus. And then apart from these pathogens, there are also nematodes uh, like pest and and weevils. So these are like so many different types. And as I was mentioning, you know, there are many of them actually coexist. So is the main focus of your work bringing biotech to these varieties? mainly focused on disease resistance? We are applying the biotechnology mainly for the diseases and pest resistance, the biotech program at IITA. We have a very strong banana improvement program. So, you know, we have biotech program, but we also have breeding program. So we we tackle the problems in a very holistic way. So, you know, when we know that this is the problem for this country, we first always look at that, whether there are already some varieties which have resistance against these diseases or pests, because that's the easiest and the quickest way that, you know, you start recommending those varieties to the farmers. If not, then you see like, okay, whether the resistance is available in the germplasm, because banana germplasm, the genetic diversity is low, so not not every time you will find uh, the resistance in the germplasm. If the resistance is already present in the germplasm, the traditional breeding can be then applied. For example, for the 
Black Sega resistance, our breeding program is actually has developed some of the hybrid varieties using the conventional breeding. But then when we are handling a disease where we know that there is no natural resistance is available in the germplasm, that's when then, you know, the biotechnology comes into play, you know. And when we talk about biotechnology now, we are applying transgenic approaches and we are also using the gene editing. Transgenic approaches is mainly when we are bringing the resistance genes outside of bananas. But then gene editing comes handy, or I will say is more powerful when we have already some information, maybe from the wild type progenitor. And then we want to actually use that information to develop the resistance into the cultivated susceptible varieties. Then gene editing is very powerful in doing that. And are you focusing on just the sort of big disease threats or are you trying to bring in resistance to lots of biotic threats at the same time? Overall goal is actually to have the multiple disease resistance. Because as I was keep on emphasizing that, you know, some of the diseases and pests are actually coexisting. So, you know, if if you develop a resistance to one disease and the same variety is susceptible to a second disease and is the disease, that pathogen is also present there, releasing that variety doesn't help. So in parallel, we are actually trying to develop the technology for different diseases and pests, but our ultimate goal is that if we can actually stack them so that we have the varieties which have resistance to more than one disease and pest. And if you're looking to the existing varieties for resistance, where do you get your germplasm from? So we do have the gene bank at IIT at our headquarters. So, you know, we have a lot of collection there. But, you know, we don't work in isolation. We work in partnership, right? We have collaboration in uh, India. They have a big collection of the wild type bananas. So we know which we, uh, through our collaboration, which we can work on. East Africa has a lot of banana germplasm, which we can always tap on. So so we have, um, uh, we can access the germplasm. Yeah. Could you give an example of a problem that you've managed to address using biotechnology tools? Let me give you the example of banana xanthomonas wilt. In brief, I, we call it BXW. So this disease was initially reported on NSET. That's a crop which is closely related to banana in Ethiopia. So this disease was there for uh, five decades, but for a long time it was actually confined to that crop and also to Ethiopia. Then from NSET, it jumped to banana, but it's still quite confined to Ethiopia. But then in 2001, this disease was actually reported in Uganda. And after that, it has spread uh, to, to other countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi, and DRC. And these are the p- countries which are the major banana producing areas. So it has a big economic impact this disease has caused, you know, over the decade, the uh, estimate is like two to eight billion dollars losses because of this disease. But more than that, you know, I have visited few farmers where I have seen that, you know, the whole field was wiped off because of this disease. Because once this bacterial pathogen is there, it actually spreads very fast. And then there is no other remedy than to uproot the banana plant because so it leads to the actually 100% yield loss. And the disease is spread uh, through insects and also through the trading material. There is no resistance in any of the cultivated varieties against this disease. So we started uh, looking at what 
can be done. So, you know, we started several things in parallel, like screening of the germplasm, but also seeing if we can start developing the, the transgenic. The, the resistance we found was only in the wild type, one of the wild type banana called Musa balbiciana. And Musa balbiciana is not commonly used in the breeding programs because it has another problem of the streak virus. So in the starting through the literature search, you know, we found some genes which we thought like can have potential to develop the resistance against this disease. We tested several of them and two of them, one is called a plant feridoxin-like protein, PFLP, and the hypersensitive assistant protein, HRAP. We actually tested those genes and we got very promising results. So these transgenic bananas, we tested under the confined field trials in Uganda and they showed complete resistance against this disease for the successive crops, you know, so like the mother crop, but also the retune crop. So we tested um, several generations of the crop. The performance of these transgenic bananas were actually similar to the control non-transgenic bananas, which are very important, you know, because we tested the yield and other aspects. After that, you know, because the single gene-based resistance can break down very easily because the pathogen mutate very fast. So we have actually stacked the two genes together. And uh, so we are right now on the product development because uh, we tested them in Sukalindizi, but now we are transferring that technology to the Matuke varieties, which are mainly grown in East Africa. But that's one of the successful projects, I, I will say, because we have, uh, we have proven the technology is working, not in the glass house, but in the field for several years. Because it's transgenic, are there any obstacles or barriers that you face when it comes to releasing it? Yeah. So, you know, not all the countries have the, you know, biosafety regulation in place so that you need that those regulation in place before you can release the variety. Most of the countries where we are targeting, like where the disease is present, is very difficult. So a few years back, uh, you remember I mentioned that the wild type banana Musa balbiciana has resistance to this disease. I thought like, let's study this wild type bananas and find out the molecular basis of the resistance for this disease. So we did that and we got very good information. Now we have the whole idea like which gene goes like upregulated during the pathogen infection, which goes downregulated. So based on that information, we are now editing the banana. So we are not putting foreign gene or anything. We are trying to tweak the endogenous banana genes so that there is no foreign gene integration in them. And then once we are ready, those products will be non-GMOs. Uh, so that's main focus of our group right now. So we are working on uh, gene editing, CRISPR-Cas mediated gene editing, uh, like knocking out of the susceptibility genes. And are the biosafety regulations that you're facing just in relation to transgenic varieties or also for gene edited ones too? It depends which country you're talking about. <laughs> there are several countries where the gene edited products, if there is no foreign gene integration in them, they are not regulated as GMOs. Those are the like, like in US, Canada, Australia, Japan, and then several other in Latin America. But then when, you, when we come to Africa, Nigeria is the first country which has developed the regulation last year. They have now the guidelines, which also says that if there is no foreign gene integration in the gene edited product, then the product will not be regulated as GMO. So there is a difference. And then Kenya is actually at the very advanced level of uh, 
approving. So they have a draft guideline. We are waiting for the final approval. So aside from your breeding programs, what other challenges do you face? So recently, we also started working on uh, fusarium wilt. As I said that, you know, this is also becoming a global challenge now because of the TR4. Uh, so we started working on Cavendish as well. So now in our lab, uh, but we are we are at the very, very preliminary stages. So far, I was more talking about at the higher level, how we do the work. Uh, but when you go technically more details, you know, it's not that easy. Uh, banana is a bit difficult crop to work on. So we have to spend a few years, you know, in developing uh, cell suspensions. And also right now, what we are trying to do is we are trying to see how we can integrate gene editing into the breeding program. And the second one is we also want to improve the parent for the breeding program so that it can be so the gene editing can be more integrated into the breeding program. So we want to like use the biotechnology to complement the challenges which the breeders are having. So do you anticipate that that the varieties that you're working on and the resistance that you're introducing will then be capable of being used globally? Is that is that part of the vision? If we develop, suppose, the Cavendish resistant to these ones, this can be used globally. It's not only for the African countries. So when you think back over your career, we've talked a lot about bananas and um, we, we didn't touch particularly on um, sort of challenges that you faced before coming to this role, but you know, you must have had ups and downs. So tell me about um, you know, a time when you've ha- faced a real challenge and how you've got through that, how you've kept, kept moving forwards. Is one challenge is actually the funding because we are non-for-profit institution and we are project-based institutions. So, you know, apart from focusing on the research, we have to also keep on looking for the funds. And then the, when the project is coming to end and if we don't get the next phase, so, you know, what to do, whether that technology goes on the shelf or how to continue that one. And that's a real challenge because some of our technologies which we have developed on the project actually are sitting on the shelf because the lack of funding. And then the second challenge is definitely the regulatory side. It's a time-consuming thing to get all the approvals and, and all those things. We haven't reached to the stage where the product is ready to for the commercialization, but we know that, yes, that that is not easy. <laughs> what kinds of opportunities do you see for the future? What are you excited about? I see there is a lot of opportunities, particularly for gene editing, that technology for its application. This is a really powerful technology. And I will not consider gene editing as like a just a standalone that that technology can solve all the problem. I'm not talking about that. But, you know, that's like a powerful tool in a toolbox. And I also see a little bit change in the mindset of people. So, you know, uh, people who were more like, you know, uh, against the GM because, you know, they have a, a lot of fear, you know, means I think whenever there is a new technology, it's, a, it's a, like a natural to have a fear against that. So now, you know, scientists and, uh, and other people have so much experience that, you know, if you bring a new technology, you also know that, you know, you have to start public awareness early enough. So with, with that combination, I really, really see uh, a bright future for, for biotechnology um, in um, as like a complementary to the breeding and to the other technologies. It's still there is what is going on in Europe influences other places. Tell me more about that. When a layman hear that, you know, 
in one country, they are talking against of this technology. This person like always sit back and feel like, oh, why? That's what we, uh, not only me, but it means like many people, we are trying to provide the scientific evidences to do the general awareness to say that, no, this technology is not bad. But I see at least in the genome editing, many countries are coming up. Like, for example, Japan has approved tomato, which is helping other countries, you know. Yeah, I suppose it does take time for fears. Well, it's two things. It takes time for the evidence to accumulate so that fears can be allayed. And it also takes time for the debate to sort of play out in the public arena, you know, for both sides to get their their story across and for for a consensus to begin to form about how could these tools be used or where are they best applied, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, because it's several times I go in the meetings and then people do ask me like, you know, oh, but, but why Europe considered gene editing products similar to the GMOs? What's the concern? <laughs> so, you know, you keep on like repeatedly those type of questions. So, so you can't say that, you know, what is happening in Europe doesn't influence other places. It does. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I have learned so much about the mucigenus that I didn't know before. And it's been such an interesting conversation. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us, Dr. Lena Tripathi. Thanks. Thanks, Anna. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint, or on Instagram at pbs underscore int. Until next time, stay well.